Welcome to New Hope and the teaching ministry of Pastor Randy Rainwater. Teaching today, Director of Operations, Sheba Sacha. And when they worship the Lord with all of their heart, they'll give up the bottle. They'll give up that TV show. They'll give up those things and surrender to the Lord and say, Lord, I don't need this stuff. I don't need to worship an idol or another person. I worship you and you alone. In today's message, Sheba reminds us that worship is worth-ship, W-O-R-T-H-S-H-I-P, and it changes hearts. This is Beloved, our study of the book of Revelation. Here's Sheba. If you can turn in your Bibles with me to Revelation, just the book right now, and I'll tell you exactly what chapter in a few moments. If you don't know where Revelation is, it is right after Jude, right before the maps in your Bible or the appendix. Um, I've been praying lately and I'm like, Lord, do not, please. We see like the COVID cases are resurging and I'm just like, God, please don't let us go into another pandemic again. And it got me thinking about the last one. Because, not the last one, it got me thinking about last year. Just the fact that when the pandemic started, I mean, how many of you guys remember toilet paper and cleaning products literally flew off the shelves? You guys remember that? Yes, of course. And it was just the, the craziest thing. I remember talking to one of our interns here and I was like, hey, isn't this so ridiculous? Like, why are people going crazy for toilet paper? We don't have that issue where I come from. We're in India. We use other methods. <laughs> um, but then I asked her, do you remember Y2K? Because I feel like something similar happened in that season. And she turned to me and she said, is that a band? <laughs> she did not remember Y2K. Why is that? Because she was born in 1998. It's okay for all you youngins in here. I had to educate her, so I'll tell you exactly what happened. As we came out of 1999 into 2000, they thought all the computer systems were going to crash. And people thought it was going to be the end of the world. But we're all here, so it wasn't. I do specifically remember my mom, she took these milk jugs and she, when they were empty, she filled them up with water so that just in case anything happened, we'll be fine, at least for two months. Um, but the day, that New Year's Day, New Year's Eve actually, my brother and I, we were watching TV. I was probably 11 or 12 and we're watching, it hit midnight. We count down five, four, three, two, one. Nothing happened. And we were so bummed because we were excited for the world to end. I mean, kids, kids, as kids, you're just innocent. And we were like, oh gosh, this would be so exciting and fun. But it didn't happen. Ever since then, though, there's been multiple times that people have tried to predict when the world's gonna end. You know, they were like, oh, the Mayan calendar, it's happening today or next Saturday. Actually, somebody encountered me when I was in the Sam's Club parking lot and she was telling me there's a flood coming on Saturday. I was like, okay, sure, I'm fine. I'm the type of person, I'm like, it doesn't bother me. I'm gonna live my life in a way that pleases the Lord. 
and I don't have to worry about it. I don't have to freak out about these things. I'm not gonna go into Revelation and try to find who the Antichrist is or when it's gonna happen, the exact date and time or where the final battle is going to take place. I just am not into those things. So as you can imagine, when I was asked to teach on the book of Revelation, I was a little hesitant because I love the first four books. I love the letters to the churches, but after that, oh my gosh, I get lost in the imagery and all of the prophecies. It can be very daunting, but it is the word of God. And we may all feel like that sometimes about a particular book. I feel like John, when he wrote this book, he knew that believers would be hesitant to read it. And why do I say that? Because he offers a special blessing to anyone who reads it in chapter one, verse three. He says, God blesses the one who reads the words of this prophecy to the church. So I'm blessed. (laughs) And he blesses all who listen to this message. So you're blessed this morning as well. And we are going to dive in this morning to Revelation chapters eight through 10. It is about the seven trumpets. But before I get there, I want to lay some groundwork for you because we're not able to understand Revelation 8 until we go back to Revelation 6 and see what happens in in two verses, in verse nine and 10, which gives the context and helps us to build the framework for why God is doing what he's doing in Revelation chapter eight. So actually turn with me to Revelation chapter six, and this is really interesting. When the lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of all who had been martyred for the word of God and for being faithful in their testimony. They shouted to the Lord and said, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you judge the people who belong to this world and avenge our blood for what they have done to us? These martyrs are crying out to God. They're saying, when are you gonna bring justice? A martyr is someone who has lost their, lost their life for their faith. And just this week, I had got this in the mail. We um, subscribed to something called The Voice of the Martyrs. It's a newsletter that you get delivered, mailed to your home. And it was talking about persecution that's happening in Ethiopia right now. I know it's hard for us to imagine that there's anything going on in the world, especially living in the West, where we're not used to seeing persecution in the way that it happens in other parts of the world. But there's this story in here that really caught my attention. It's of a man who started following Jesus, he and his family, and um, the villagers did not like that because they think if you come to Christ, it's a curse on the whole village. So what they did is they, first of all, kind of gave him some warnings, some death threats. But after that, they decided to set his house on fire with his wife and kids in it. Thankfully, he was able to see what was going on. He rushed home, rescued his kids. And in this interview, though, I was just amazed and awestruck by what he said. They only burned my earthly house, so my heart is not full of hatred. I pray for them. Isn't that amazing? If only I can have an ounce of that faith, that courage and boldness that they have. But we see that all throughout scripture, martyrdom was common. It was common to give up your life for Jesus. I mean, he did say, take up your cross and follow me. And to them, they understood that as, I'm gonna take up my cross, the literal cross, and go to the cross and follow him. Stephen was stoned to death. 
Paul, the apostle, John the Baptist, they were both beheaded. James, it says in Acts, was put to death by the sword. And John, who is writing this book, he was exiled to the island of Patmos. And eventually he later on died there. Why? Because he was preaching the gospel. And all of these people, they died, they gave up their lives for the sake of the gospel. Did they receive justice on this side of eternity? No. They weren't able to stand up for themselves. They weren't able to defend themselves at all. And it looks like sometimes the enemy wins. It looks like evil triumphs over good once and for all. But God says, I will bring revenge. He will. He will bring justice. And these martyrs are crying out, but God, how long must we wait for it? When are you going to make it happen? When will you put our enemies to shame? They're not just our enemies, they're also your enemies because they are against you. They're hostile to the faith. So none of these martyrs receive justice on earth. Has God forsaken them? Will he do anything about this? That's a question I repeatedly come to the Lord with. Like, God, how long? Sometimes you feel forsaken. I mean, look at Jesus on the cross. He's the son of God. And he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It feels like that way at times. We don't see the end of the story, so we don't understand how everything's gonna play out. But in the middle, it feels like the storm overwhelms you and you can't understand why you're going through it. You feel forsaken. And maybe some of you here have been wounded by people. People are hard to get along with sometimes. Um, you, and you're just so hurt. Maybe you lost your job unfairly. You were terminated without reason. Or maybe you were cheated on or betrayed by someone that was very close to you and you're asking God, when are you gonna make these things right? How long, God, must I wait for you to bring justice? I want you to see what God says in Romans chapter eight. It says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. I'm actually gonna read the rest of that verse because it's so interesting. It's in your notes, Romans chapter eight, verse 19. Beloved, don't be obsessed with taking revenge, but leave that to God's righteousness. For the scriptures say, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. There will come a day when God defends his people, when God will bring justice, not because he's an evil or mean God, but he loves his people fiercely. And when you love someone, you will fight on their behalf. I know in our generation, we tend to like, Value the love of God, the mercy of God, the, 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 um, you know, the good aspects of God, we might say. And we, we tend to see him as this like cute, cuddly lamb, but we forget that he rose out of the grave like the roaring lion of Judah. God is a God of love and justice. And judgment comes out of justice because he's trying to make things right. But in the meantime, he says, vengeance belongs to me. Let me do the payback. Let me handle this. Don't take it into your own hands because when you try to have the last word, when you are obsessed with trying to get even, you actually become a prisoner in the end of your own anger. 
and revenge. You dig a, dip, a, a pit a deeper for yourself that you are not able to get out of. So he says, vengeance is mine. Leave it to me and I will handle it. So what do we do in the meantime then? What do we do when we're mistreated, when we are just treated unfairly? What do we do? We look at the example of the martyrs. They took their anger and they turned it into prayer. Instead of lashing out on someone else, instead of trying to take out their anger on someone else, they took it to God. Take it to the Lord. He will resolve these things for you because there will come a day that he will act and he will make all things right. Vengeance belongs to the Lord. That's my first point. And now I'm gonna go into chapter eight. Now that you know that, you see what the martyrs are doing. They're crying out to God. It'll give you the context of what we're about to read in chapter eight, verse one. Because this is when the Lord brings payback. Chapter eight, verse one. When the lamb broke the seventh seal on the scroll, there was silence throughout heaven for about half an hour. I saw the seven angels who stood before God. They were given seven trumpets. Last week we talked about the seven seals and this week we're going into the seven trumpets. Then another angel with a gold incense burner came and stood at the altar and a great amount of incense was given to him. But look at what this incense is mixed with. Mixed with the prayers of God's people as an offering on the gold altar before the throne. See, these are the prayers of the martyrs, the prayers of the saints of God's people. And look at what God is about to do. In verse five, it says, then the angel filled the incense burner with the fire from the altar and threw it down upon the earth. The thunder crashed, the lightning flashed, and there was a terrible earthquake. God finally acts on their behalf in chapter eight. God says, I've heard your prayers. I'm going to do something. And sometimes it seems like our prayers have gone unheard or we tend to interpret God's silence as inactivity or as though he's not doing anything at all. But no, he has a divine timing. He has heard their prayers all along. But in that right time, he acts. I want you guys to remember that because it feels like that's that way sometimes. I remember just growing up and I'd be like, gosh, I feel like I'm praying to a wall. Like, I don't hear anything. I don't feel anything. I don't see anything. Are you listening to me? What are you, what are you doing, God? But he collects your prayers. Your prayers are collected by God. And when it comes time, he will act. It is the prayers of the martyrs that activate the judgments that are about to take place in the next verses. So if you drop down to chapter eight, verses seven, what we're about to read is the seven angels that were giving, given these seven trumpets, they're going to blow these trumpets. And after each trumpet is blown, there's a plague that descends upon the earth. So verse seven says, the first angel blew his trumpet and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood. These were thrown upon the earth and a third of the earth was burned up. A third of the trees were burned up and all the green grass. The second angel blew his trumpet and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. A third of the sea became blood. These are pretty terrifying, I know. 
A third of the living creatures in the sea died and a third of the ships were destroyed. So you kind of get the gist. Angel blows his trumpet, something happens on the earth. The third angel blew his trumpet, a third of the water supply turns bitter. The fourth blows his trumpet and a third of the moon and sun are struck. So the first four plagues have to deal with God bringing destruction upon the earth, upon nature. But then the next three deal with people because the fifth angel blows his trumpet and in, in verse three of chapter nine, it says, then the smoke came from the locusts on the earth and they were given the power like the power of scorpions. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or the green plants or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. So they only attack those who do not identify um, as identify that Jesus is their savior. The sixth trumpet is blown, then angels are loosened and war is waged against humanity. So by the time all these trumpets are blown, 50% of the world is totally destroyed. 50% of the population is wiped out. I mean, isn't that crazy? I, mean, I can't even imagine it. I read this and I'm like, it doesn't make sense. But God, why would you do that? What is your purpose? It kind of seems a little bit over the top, don't you think? Why are you doing this, God? And he tells us in verse 20, why? Because he's trying to give the people on earth another chance. He wants them to see and realize that he is the one true living God. In verse 20, it says, but the people who did not die in these plagues still refused to repent of their evil deeds and turn to God. God's trying to get their attention. He's trying to shake them up and wake them up because they're in this spiritual slumber and he wants them to see his greatness and his power and to turn to him, but they don't. You see, sometimes God uses pain in our lives to speak to us. C.S. Lewis, who is a very well-known author and theologian, he was actually an atheist until his 30s and then afterwards he gave his life to Christ very educated man, and he went through so much loss in his life. But one of his books, he writes, pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Pain is God's megaphone. A megaphone is kind of like a microphone. You put it up close to your mouth, and when you speak into it, it amplifies your voice. And it is really helpful for people like me who, you know, kind of speak quietly or gently, when I'm trying to speak to a large group of people and get their attention, a megaphone accomplishes that purpose. And in the same way, God uses pain to get our attention. I want you guys to think about the last time you were in a very painful, maybe physical, probably physical pain situation. It's not hard to, to think about because we don't forget memories like that. But my most recent one had to do with my teeth. I don't know how something so small in my mouth can cause so much pain. that it, It's not just even in my mouth. You literally feel it throughout your whole body. So I had an abscess in one of my teeth and I got an appointment to the dentist, but I couldn't see him for like a whole week. He didn't have any availability. And he was like, you're gonna be fine. Just take some pain meds. Well, I was desperate. I was in so much pain that I took pain meds, I tried to sleep, I felt like I couldn't even do anything for the whole day. And 
And then you guys know there's this thing called Ambisol. Apparently it like numbs the area. So every time the pain resurfaced, reapply it, reapply. I probably went through the whole bottle in like three days, but it, it did help. And eventually I got to go to the dentist. But the point is God uses pain in our lives to create a level of desperation for him to turn our hearts back to him, to get our attention and say, wake up. Can you see me? Can you see my glory? Can you turn your heart back to to me? Wake up. And that pain, even though it's hard and it hurts us so badly, it helps us in the end. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 10 and 11 says, God's discipline. You didn't know God disciplined you, did you? It's not just your parents, yes. God's discipline is always good for us so that we might share in his holiness. No discipline is enjoyable while it's happening. It's painful. When you're going through it, it doesn't feel good. But afterward, you see, it's the fruit that comes out of it. Afterward, there will be a peaceful harvest of right living for those who are trained in this way. Think to yourself, when you go through something painful, something challenging and uncomfortable, what is your response? I know mine is, take me out of this, God. Either take me out of this or take this out of my life. I can't handle it. It's unbearable. Jesus, please, what are you doing? It doesn't make sense. But perhaps our response should also be, God, Are you trying to get my attention about something? What are you trying to teach me through this? Because it is in those tough times, in the seasons where we go through some of the hardest things that produce the most fruit in our lives, that the most growth appears in our lives. The thing that seemed like an enemy, that situation, it seems like your worst enemy, ends up proving to be a friend because it is drawing you closer to the heart of God and it is refining your character. And I'm not saying that, I'm not, it's not my intention to say that, that um, this is the reason for all pain, no. But I do believe God never wastes our pain. God never wastes our pain, whether it is to serve the purpose of trying to get our attention or he'll use it later on to bring encouragement and hope to someone else who's going through another, a, a similar situation. God never wastes our pain. It always serves a purpose. Remember that. But what's important is our response. The way that we respond is so important. Pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. God's like, wake up. I'm just telling y'all, wake up. Whoever's sleeping in here. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, but in um, obviously, as I said, it didn't work. They were not able to understand and to see what God was doing, and it didn't get their attention because they continued to sin. They continued to worship idols. They continued and they refused to repent of their evil deeds. I want to read verse 20 again, chapter 9, verse 20. But the people who did not die in these plagues still refused to repent of their evil deeds. 
and turn to God. They continue to worship. I want you to underline that word worship. What do they worship? Demons? You can worship demons. Idols made of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood. So worshiping the creation rather than the creator. Idols that can neither see nor hear nor walk. As I mentioned, the purpose of these afflictions was to bring repentance, to wake them up. But in spite of seeing God's judgment, in spite of seeing God's tremendous power, they still had no remorse. They still did not turn or change their hearts to turn towards God. And, you know, when you read stuff like this or when you even read about the Israelites who God did these miraculous things for them over and over and over again, yet they continue to complain, yet they continue to be bitter, you look at people like that and you're like, what? How much has God got to do to get your attention? What do you need? Just think about the times that the Lord has been so faithful in your life. Think about the times when you were like, God, if you do this one thing for me, if you um, change my brother's life, which he did in my life, if you deliver me from this addiction, if you save this person in my family, I will serve you with all my heart. Have we kept our promises to the Lord? Or are we like these people continuing to walk in our blindness, not being able to turn and give our attention to the Lord? And God says, he says, he is merciful and he is kind, but he wants true worshipers. He wants people who will serve him and love him with all their hearts. Verse 21 says, and they did not repent of their murders or their witchcraft or their sexual immorality or their thefts. So there was idolatry, worship of idols, and there was sin. Because those two things are always connected. Idolatry and sin are always connected because idolatry is the root of all sin. And I'm gonna say something now that might seem a little, it might not sit well with you, but Give it a moment and I'll explain what it means. Sinful behavior is never the problem. You're like, huh? Sinful behavior is never the problem. It's the behavior is the symptom of something that's a deeper issue. The behavior is the fruit of something else that is the root of the cause. Sinful behavior is never the problem. What is the deeper issue? The deeper issue is worship. That's why I had you underline that word. The deeper issue is who or what is the object of our worship? Who are we worshiping? Because the first commandment that God gave to the Israelites, it was, I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. If you're able to keep that first commandment, you're good with the rest of them. If you're able to keep that first commandment, everything else, you're not gonna have a problem with the other ones. But if you break the first commandment and have other gods, if you worship idols, the idols of, in our day, it might not be statues, it can be pleasure or money or success or body image or whatever it is in your case, ourselves. He says, if you break the first commandment, you're ultimately destined to break the rest of them because we never break the other commandments without breaking the first one. 
It's not a sin problem, it's a worship problem. That when you worship God with all of your heart, everything else will fall in line. Your behavior changes, and Tim Keller puts it this way. How do you change your behavior? Change what you worship. So this is my third point. Change your behavior by changing your worship. Try to tell an alcoholic, hey, stop drinking. Don't you see it's damaging your family? Don't you see the problems that it's causing? Try to tell someone with rage, stop being angry. Or someone that watches um, things on TV that are inappropriate. Stop doing that, it's not good for you. Don't you see the fruit that it's, it's bearing in your life? Whatever it is, it doesn't work when you tell them to stop changing because the purpose of the gospel is not behavior modification. It doesn't change the heart. Behavior modification doesn't change the heart. Worship changes your heart. And when they worship the Lord with all of their heart, they'll give up the bottle. They'll give up that TV show. They'll give up those things and surrender to the Lord and say, Lord, I don't need this stuff. I don't need to worship an idol or another person. I worship you and you alone. That is what changes people's hearts, worshiping the Lord with everything. Worship is worth-ship. Worship is worth-ship. I know in our day and time, we might think, oh yeah, I worship God. I come to, morning, I come to church on Sunday and I sing those worship songs. That's not worship. Worship is a lifestyle. It is worth-ship. Acknowledging and knowing the value, the tremendous value and worth of God and worshiping him. How much is he worth to you? How much is he worth to you? Matthew chapter six, verse 21 says, where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. What's your heart on? Because whatever your heart, whatever you give your heart to is whatever you treasure. Do you treasure the Lord? Um, how do you, how do you, how do we, how do I know what I tre treasure? How do I know what I value? Just think about it. What do I give my time to? What do I give my money to? Where do I find the greatest joy in my life? Who do I turn to first in any situation? Is it the Lord? God says, worship me. Spend time with me. Oh my gosh, do you know how much your life can change if you at least devoted an hour to the Lord a day? There will be things that you're working on in your life for years that will start to change when you spend time with the Lord. Why? Because it is through abiding that we bear fruit in our lives. It is not by doing, it is by abiding and spending time with the Lord. And he says, serve me with your money. You don't serve two masters. You don't serve money and God Give generously and serve the Lord with your resources. Where do I find my greatest joy? I wanna find it in the Lord. I wanna turn to him in every season, in every situation, not just in crisis and say, okay, God, um, I'm going through this really tough situation. Can you help me out? Worship is a lifestyle about following Jesus daily, not only when things go wrong, but every single day, making time for him and valuing him and showing him what he is worth. How do you change your behavior? You change who you worship. And when you, when you start worshiping him, he recalibrates your life. He will transform you from the inside out. 
and he will produce incredible fruit in you. I'm telling you, it's so worth it. It is so worth it. The band can come on up. We are all worshipers in here. Every single one of us. The only difference is who is the object of your worship? Who or what are you worshiping? Who or what do you find your worth and value in? In the Old Testament, there's a story of, in the book of Daniel where the king, King Nebuchadnezzar, he builds this golden statue. I mean, it's so tall. It looks beautiful in appearance, but he asks everyone in the nation to bow down to this idol. People from the highest officials all the way to the lowest citizens of society. He says, bow down and worship. When you hear this music, I want everyone to kneel down. And the whole nation gathers and the music plays and they all bow down. But there are three young men who refuse to do that. Three young Jewish men. So King Nebuchadnezzar finds out about this and he brings them to his court and he interrogates them. He says, why are you guys doing this? Okay, I'm gonna give you one more chance. Bow down and worship this idol when you hear the music. They refuse to do it. And this is what they say. Their names are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves. There's nothing for us to explain. If we are thrown into the blazing fire, the God whom we serve is able to save us. He will rescue us from your power, your majesty. Yes, God can do a miracle. He can save us. But this is what gets me, the next verse. But even if he does not, we wanna make it very clear to you, your majesty, that we will never serve your gods or worship the golden statue that you have set up. We will never. There was no doubt. There was no quivering in their voice. They were resolute. We will never bow down. Look at their boldness to say that as young men in a foreign land, they said, I will only worship the Lord. And God is looking for a generation of people that say, yes, I'll only bow down to you. I'll only worship you. I'll only love you and treasure you above all else. Because in our nation, I'm telling you, there are, everybody is bowing down. Everybody is compromising. But we wanna stand up and say, even if I, I'm the only one, I will not bow down. I will worship the Lord. I don't need to defend myself. I'm not gonna twist the word of God. I'm not gonna pretend the Bible says something that it doesn't. I will stand upon the word of God because God is my standard and he is the one that I come to. It doesn't matter if I lose my friends or if people make fun of me. It doesn't matter if I lose my job. Because look what those martyrs did. We talked about them at the beginning. They treasured God above everything else and it cost them their life, cost them their life. God's looking for people that are so hungry for him. People that say, God, I only want to worship you. And you know what Revelation reminds us is that as we're in the end times and we have been for a long time, it's not gonna get easier. It's not gonna get 
easier to do this. It's not gonna get easier. It's actually gonna get harder for us to stand up for the gospel, to stand up for truth. And there will be many that fall away, but I don't wanna be one of them. I wanna stand firm on the word of God. I believe that he is who he says he is and his word is true and I believe he's coming back. I might not get justice on this side of eternity on earth, but one day he will come as a triumphant king and he will make all things right because every tongue will confess, every knee will bow to Jesus Christ who is Lord. He will make all things right, but until then, I'll do my part. I'll respond with my worship and my love for him. It's so worth it. They didn't give up their lives for, any, for nothing. They knew the value, the immense value of Jesus. So let's pray with me. Lord God, we thank you. We thank you for the people that have gone before us and and who, who stood up in spite of everything. Lord, make us like them, to have a heart that is set upon you, God. You're not a, a, you're not a mean God. You're not selfish. That's not why you're asking us to worship you. No, it's because you created us with this desire within us that can only be filled by you. And we try to change our behavior. How many times do we, get, do we get stuck and do we fall into the same sins over and over and over again? We try to focus on the thing that we shouldn't. But we wor- your word says like it is the worship that changes our hearts. It is worshiping you. So I just pray for anyone that's struggling with anything right now, whether it's temptation or whatever it is, that you would bring deliverance and healing in their lives, that you would reorient their lives so that they may be walking in one direction, but that you would bring them back to your heart, Lord. And you're a God of love. Just reminded what it says in Joel chapter two, yet even now declares the Lord, Return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Tear your heart and not merely your garments. Now return to the Lord, for he is gracious and compassionate. He is slow to anger, abounding in mercy and relenting of catastrophe. God wants to welcome you back with loving, open arms. Thanks, Sheba. It is worship that changes our hearts. So the question is, who or what do you worship? Thanks for joining us. I'm Myrna Brown.